Well, amen. Well, 500 years ago, Michelangelo painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel along with the fresco of the final judgment, the last judgment. And his artwork is considered some of the most brilliant and beautiful art in the world. But as time passed, the beauty of the art was masked by layers of dirt and soot, layers added on top of it. It it discolored it. It distorted the image of what was originally there. Those layers built up on the surface, and it hid much of the beauty of what was there. And because of this, many people thought that Michelangelo painted in very subdued, drab colors, like what we see on the left. But back in the 1980s, an extensive restoration project was begun to remove centuries of dirt and grime from the surface of this, restoring it to what it was originally intended to look like. And it revealed that Michelangelo painted not in subdued, drab, dark colors, but in bold, vibrant, beautiful colors, that his painting was full of life and excitement, as we see on the right. But up until that time, much of that was hidden, much of that was distorted. You know, restoring the beauty of this required stripping off layers that had been added on top. Some of those layers just naturally built up over time, but some of those layers were added by others in attempts to restore it originally, in attempts to protect this painting. They had actually put wax on top. They had sometimes painted over the top of it to try and protect it, and they had to remove all of that. And so restoring it meant removing all of that, and keeping it beautiful means a constant process of stripping off new layers that would be added on top as well. Well, church, it's kind of like that for the church, for us. You know, God created his people to be a display of his bold, vibrant, beautiful image of who he is, to put his own love on display full of life and character for everyone to see. But over time, over centuries, sometimes that can get distorted. The beauty of what God intended can get hidden, even, And we have to strip off some of those layers to restore the beauty. Hence the series we're in right now of restore, of getting back to the way that God intended things to be as best we can. You know, this is what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. God, centuries before that, had given his people instruction, instruction to help them draw near to him and help them live in a healthy relationship with God. But over time, Layers had been added on top of that. Sometimes the meaning distorted or even hidden. And some of that was in good effort, well-intentioned, but they had added to it more and more and more. And some of the people most to blame for that, people like me, religious leaders at the time. So five times in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, you've heard it said this way, but I tell you. You've heard it say retaliate against your enemies, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. And love them. You've heard that the law says this, but I tell you, you've misinterpreted it. You've missed it. It actually says this. Jesus was taking them back to the way it was supposed to be interpreted, back to the way that God had intended. He was restoring it, if you will. You know, Jesus was always doing that. He was constantly reframing God for people, helping them understand God better. 
He did it for his followers as well as those who opposed him. He was constantly reframing their perspective, their understanding of Messiah, of mission, of mercy, of kingdom, of greatness, of love. Church, is it possible that maybe we have heard it said, but that Jesus wants to open our eyes to a different interpretation, to see something new or to see it differently, to reframe our understanding? Is it possible that we have created rules and practices based on what we think the Bible says, but that we may have gotten it wrong a time or two? Church, today I want to invite you into my struggle. And this is something that's difficult for every generation. This is something that's difficult for every church leader. And this, honestly, is something that's pretty difficult for most Jesus followers. To take a look into what we believe and what we think and the way we practice those beliefs and see if maybe we've added some unnecessary layers You know, it's so easy to get locked into our way of doing things. So easy to get locked into using the Bible to legitimize what we say, taking a verse here or there or a passage and using it to proof text what we want the Bible to say. Usually it's out of good intentions. Almost always out of good intentions. There are some people who abuse it, but so often it's to try and guard against sin. It's to try and pursue holiness. It's to try and show reverence for God. And those are great, beautiful reasons for doing so. But we must ask ourselves at times if there's some things we've added up that maybe we need to take a harder look at, some things that need to be removed. And we've got to be willing to ask ourselves those questions and let others ask questions of us as well. You know, the spirit of questioning has always been at the heart of the Restoration Movement, a movement begun back in the early 1800s during America's Second Great Awakening, the movement that gave rise to our church and churches like us. It was the spirit of those early pioneers of that movement who said, perhaps we need to look beyond the denominationalism, perhaps we need to look beyond all these layers, and we need to get back to the essentials of who God is, of what the Bible actually says, of who Jesus is as king and leader. And we need to focus our attention there and give some room for some disagreement on some of the secondary issues. All the while, pursuing unity, pursuing love, pursuing Jesus and his mission for us. You know, it wasn't just with them that that spirit of questioning arose. It wasn't new at that time. It's the same thing that Martin Luther did back in the day. In 1517, he nailed up a list of theses, 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. Luther wasn't trying to leave the church. He wasn't trying to split the church. He simply looked at the church and said, hey, maybe some of the things that we do and we think the Bible tells us to do, maybe we need to rethink some of that. One of those things Making people pay for the prayers. And the more they pay, the better we pray and the better they get with God. Maybe maybe we need to rethink that one. (laughs) But Luther was seen as a heretic. He went against tradition. He was kicked down to the church. A hundred years later, Galileo. Galileo said, hey, you know, the the church has held to this tradition that the, the sun revolves around the earth. But maybe we've misinterpreted what that passage in the Bible means. Because... Best I can tell from science, the earth actually revolves around the sun. But he went against tradition and he was kicked out of the church. Is it possible that we've seen some things like that in our time? Now, I don't want to be too quick to point a finger of judgment at anyone because I get it. 
I don't want to blame anyone else before I look in the mirror. You know, this begins with a good hard look in the mirror because it's so hard to see past our own tradition, so hard to see beyond the way we've always done it, beyond our own particular interpretation. And everybody has one. We all come to it with our own baggage. We come to it, we bring our own things to the table. We can't help doing that. It's part of being human. It's hard to see past our preferences. And again, tradition and preference is not a bad thing. It's actually a beautiful thing. But let me clarify this for us. Tradition is good. Tradition is a living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Doing the things we've always done simply because we've always done it without looking at why we might do that. Church, we need to take an honest look at how and why we do what we do as a church, as believers, as individuals. And we need to do so with a humble spirit that's willing to acknowledge that we may have got some things wrong, or we may be doing some very good things, but we may have elevated them to a place of being more essential than they really are. And this, I want to tell you again, this is tough. It's one of the toughest things I do, and I try to do this often. So I want to invite you to join me in the wrestle. But here's what I know. If we don't do this, Others will do it for us. They will force it upon us. We live in an era now known as the great resignation with people resigning from work. You see that? (laughs) You go out to just about any place that you used to go and there's a work shortage, a worker shortage, right? Like where did they all go? We know the pandemic didn't create all that mess. Like what happened to the workforce? Where are they? But you know that, people are resigning from work. They're saying, you know, I don't want to do a job that I feel value, that gives me a life, that's something I want to do. If I got to call it work and I can't call it joy, I'm not going to do it. So people are resigning from work. They're also resigning from relationships. All the time, people are resigning from relationships. And we see it, and that's sad. There are also many resigning from their faith structure. Not just from Christianity, but across the board, all different kinds of faith. So while we see mass numbers of people coming to know Jesus, coming to surrender to him as both Lord and Savior, as leader and king and rescuer, and we see the church growing, and we see this happening right here at OCC, right here at Oklahoma, we see it happening in our city, we see it happening across the globe, across the world, we see people coming to know Jesus, we see his church grow, but at the same time, We see a stream of people walking away from faith, leaving the faith. You know, the fastest growing religion in the United States are the nuns. Now, I don't mean in UNS. No, the nuns in the Catholic Church, they're they're pretty much locked in. They're good. But the fastest growing religion in the U.S. is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And these are people with no religious affiliation. People, if you want to talk to them about Islam or Buddhism or Judaism or Christianity or whatever religion or faith system. I say, that's great. I'm just not interested. I don't care. I mean, that's the religious belief of the nun is I don't care. I'm disinterested. And these are not just people who never went to church. This also includes many people who formerly went to church. And that should cause us pause. That should, that should hit us. Almost 30% of the people in America now identify in this category. But under the age of 40, it's almost 40% of people identify as this. And that is shocking and that should shock us. At the center of this 
is deconstruction. People are tearing their faith apart and they're putting it on display. Now this subject here, it's controversial. It's emotionally charged. It's complicated. Because there's not one definition of what deconstruction means. So it makes it really easy for someone like me to talk about it. (laughs) There's about 100 different definitions for faith deconstruction. There's not one particular approach to how people are deconstructing their faith, which again makes it kind of difficult for us to take a look at it today. But we must look at deconstruction and we must take a look at reconstructing and putting faith back in place. So let me offer this, and I admit this is a very oversimplified definition of deconstruction. It's a thorough examination of one's beliefs. It's an examination and a willingness to tear it apart without any willingness to necessarily put it back together or put anything back in its place. So, at the heart of deconstruction is doubt. Not everyone, but most people who are deconstructing their faith will admit that there's some level of doubt that's involved in that. But I want to let you know, doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. There was a moment when Jesus had, had served the people. He, he had basically taken a breadstick and a can of sardines and fed an entire village with it. And then afterwards, he went up on the mountainside to pray, and he sent his disciples back across the sea. And, and as he was doing that, he said, you go there, I'll catch up with you. And so Jesus sends them off. He's up praying, and meanwhile, while he's praying... The disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water, as one does. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were like, oh, that's Jesus, typical. No, they were terrified, because it's three in the morning, they've been fighting the wind and the seas, it's raging, the boat is rocking back and forth, they're like, hey, look, there's a dude walking on the water, and then in their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost, because you don't expect to see somebody walking across water like that. But Jesus spoke to them at once, immediately, don't be afraid, guys, it's me, take courage, I'm here. So Pete says... Lord, if it really is you, tell me to come to you walking on the water because that's how Pete is. He's just impulsive like that. And Jesus says, yeah, come on over, Peter. So Pete jumps over the side of the boat and walks on the water towards Jesus. Keep that in mind. We move on. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, Peter got terrified and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. And we give him a bad rap for this, right? You may have heard this taught before. Oh, Pete, he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. Oh, Pete didn't have enough faith. Oh, he began to sink. Who else got out of the boat? Anybody? Right. Who else was like, Jesus, you tell me to come, I'm coming. Who else walked on water? Let's cut Pete some slack here. The boy showed some serious faith. He walked on water, he went towards Jesus. Let's not beat him up too much for that, okay? He's in a good spot. But then he begins to sink. And Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. He has so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt? So when they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshiped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. Now ask the question, why did you doubt? You may have heard this taught that Jesus was chastising Peter, that he was blaming him, that he was kind of harshly going against him. I used to think that, I had taught that before, but the more you look at this, I don't think that's the way it went. What if Jesus questioned, why'd you doubt? 
Well, what if that question was really less an accusation and more an invitation? Less condemnation and more encouragement. You know, Jesus immediately reached out his hand to Peter. Immediately reached out his hand. The one who reaches out their hand, that's not an act of condemnation. That's compassion. That's saving. That's rescuing. I I don't think he was beating Peter up. I I don't think he was speaking harshly to him. Pete, you don't have any faith. Why do you doubt me? I think Jesus was pretty gentle. I think he was inviting in that moment. I think he was reminding Peter, Peter, you still got a long way to go in your faith, buddy. Why'd you doubt me, though? You know who I am. Just a few hours ago, man, you saw me turn a Lunchable into an all-you-can-eat buffet for an entire village. You, you saw me walking on the water. Pete, why'd you doubt? You know what I can do. You know who I am. You know I got you. I got you. So Jesus met him right there in his doubt. Peter's drowning in the water, but he's also drowning in his doubt, and Jesus reaches his hand out to him right there, meets him where he is. I got you. I got you. Friend, I want you to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith. In fact, doubt is often an invitation to a deeper faith, to a more substantive faith. If you face doubts, if you face uncertainty, I get it. In fact, let me just ask. Anyone here ever face doubt? Anyone in here ever wrestle with some spiritual? I'll go ahead and lift your hands. If you have ever had some spiritual doubts, some uncertainty, yeah, that's good. Some of our Bible teachers raising their hands. I love that because it's true. Guess what? My hand's still raised. I'm right there with you. I get it. Those of you online, if you've ever had some doubt, go ahead and let us know. Yeah, me too. I'm in that boat. And get this, like I won't just speak of it like it was in the past, okay? Not just that I have had doubts, but I wrestle pretty often. Different things at different times and different seasons. The fact that I have walked with Jesus for nearly three decades, the fact that I'm a preacher does not make me immune to doubt. In fact, sometimes the nature of my study causes me to doubt. But I don't have to worry about that. I I look at that as a way to move through that doubt into a closer, more vibrant relationship with Jesus. You know, Jesus asked Peter, why do you doubt? I think that's a good question for us. It's not sin. Your doubt does not mean your faith is weak, does not mean your faith isn't sincere, does not mean all the things that you once believed are no longer true. That's not what it means. Doubt means you are moving towards Jesus. It means you're wrestling. It means you're, you're learning to own your faith. It means you're growing in your faith. It means you're learning how to trust Jesus even when you don't have all the answers or even when the answers you have are the ones you don't want. It means you're learning to trust even still. and That's what doubt means. Your doubt does not disqualify your faith. Not necessarily. So I want to encourage you when you face doubt, don't panic, don't freak out, but process. Allow it to drive you toward the answers and ultimately allow it to drive you toward Jesus. Jesus, would you meet me in my doubt? Would you reach your hand out to me as I'm drowning in this? Friend, doubt does not need to become denial and deconstruction does not need to become disbelief. You know, is it possible that we can doubt faithfully? That we can doubt with faith? 
Like Elijah in the Old Testament, God, I believe you, but where are you? Having a hard time seeing it right now. Maybe we doubt like John the Baptist. Jesus, I trust you. I trust that you're the one. But are you really the one? Am I going to die in this prison cell? Are they going to take my head? Jesus, are you the one? Maybe we doubt like the father of the demon-possessed boy. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Maybe we doubt like the disciples walking with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Oh, we believed he's the one. We trusted he's the one. But now we're not sure. They didn't realize they were with the one and he was resurrected. Maybe we can learn to have faith through doubt like Thomas did. You remember Thomas? What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas, right? We give him this bad rap. Like, that's a nasty nickname. Oh, he doubted. Listen, you tell me that one of my best friends died and now he's walking around. I might have some doubt then too, right? Like trying to figure the thing out. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus meets him right there in his doubt, meets him right there. Doesn't chastise him, doesn't scold him, doesn't be like, oh, Thomas, you doubted, get out. You're not cut out for this. No, it's like, Tommy, you need to see right here in the hand, right here in the side. You touch, you believe, good. Now others will believe because of you. Jesus meets him in his doubt and moves him through doubt to belief. And I think he wants to do the same for every one of us as well. Is it possible that we could doubt with faith like the earliest disciples? You know, from time to time we'll preach on Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's the great commission. Jesus tells his followers, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because of that, I want you to go and make disciples of every nation, make followers of every person everywhere, teaching them to obey what I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And don't worry, because I'm always gonna be with you. I'm never gonna leave you, never forsake you. Well, you know what happens right before that, immediately before that, the verse before Jesus tells them that? Jesus has told his friends, his followers, meet me on this hillside. And they meet him there, and he's getting ready to tell them this. And this is what happens right then. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Now let me point out what this him is, right? Who is him? It's Jesus. But this is resurrected Jesus. This is Jesus who they saw get arrested and beaten and tortured and whipped and crucified and killed and dead and buried. And now he's back to life walking in their midst. That's the him. So they see him and they worship him. Yes, you would, right? Woo. But notice this. But some of them doubted. The resurrected king of the universe standing in front of them. I'm going to worship. But I got some doubts. Like some of this doesn't make sense. Hold on. Let me figure this out. Like let me worship through my doubt. Can I doubt even as I worship? Like, that's what they're wrestling with. And you know what this means for us? The significance of this? It's that we can worship the resurrected Jesus even if we have some doubt. That we can still come to him and allow him to stand in our room. So we can stand before him and say, I believe, I worship, I fall. But I still got some doubts here. Church, let me tell you. We had some young people Multiple generations of young people asking some deep, genuine, theological, tough, legitimate questions. They have some doubts, 
And part of this, they have doubts because of what they've seen in the church. Let me just read to you some of the questions coming out of that generation. Why do Christians think they're better than others when everyone sins? Why is LGBTQ sin treated so much worse than the sexual sin of straight people? Why does the church care so much about politics, but so little about the poor and the hurting and the marginalized? Why do we embrace political candidates that contradict our purity culture? Why is the church against taking care of the environment when God is the one who created the earth? Why is the church against women when scripture and Jesus elevated women? Why are Christians so unloving and angry? Why is the church so segregated? Why does the church oppose science? Why aren't Christians more generous? We have an entire segment of our population becoming disillusioned. And disillusion is the child of illusion. They had the illusion that Christian leaders are actually who they appear to be. And for any who know my story, you know how deeply that stings me to say. That they had the illusion that Jesus' followers would be known by their love. That they had the illusion that the longer people are in the church and walk with Jesus, the more they will mature and grow and they will display that kind of fruit in their life. You know, a lot of people are doubting because there's a wound they just can't resolve because they've been hurt. You know the story. A Christian leader who you love and you respect ends up being somewhat less than you thought. The Christian leader with the hidden sexual sin, the student pastor who gets the DUI, the dad who loves Jesus and loves the church and loves your mom and ends up, you find out, apparently loving other women as well. One person interviewed said this, for me the reason I doubt is because what I read in scripture, I just don't see in the church. And that should cause us pause. The church, there's validity to the claims laid against us. But let me just make sure we understand this. The, the church is full of hypocrites. Always has been, always will be. It's just best if we acknowledge that. The church is full of hypocrites because the church is full of people and everyone, everyone, myself included, all of us don't quite appear to be who we are. I mean, every one of us has some inconsistency in what we claim and what we believe, whether in the church or out. It's true. It's just part of being human. We wrestle with that. That's part of our sin nature. The church is full of hypocrites. It always has been. This is why... We have so much of the writings of the New Testament because Peter and Paul and James and John were writing to the church about these issues. Hey, you guys, you claim to do one thing, but you're living a different way. Hey, you got this going on. You need to get rid of that and do this. And guys, listen, follow Jesus, not this. I mean, all of it was just a breakage. of like the people are messed up, man. Like That's who we are. It always has been, and the reason we go back and we read those things and reread them and reread them, 2,000 years of reading and rereading and teaching and preaching on what the early church was dealing with is because we're still dealing with that stuff. Because human nature is human nature, and we still wrestle with our sin tendencies. So we're hypocrites. The best thing is not to pretend that we're not, just to own it. Yeah, we got mess with the church. Come join the mess. You want to be part of us? You're just going to add to the mess. You're not like you're going to fix it. <laughs> not like you're not one of us, right? But the worst thing, the most hypocritical thing is when we pretend, oh, come to the church, we're better than everybody else. 
And we might not say that, but if we give that attitude, if we give that look, if we tend to live that way. Listen, following Jesus does not mean we're better than anyone else. Not at all. Because we didn't do anything. He's done it for us. It's by grace we're saved through our faith. Not anything that we've done. If left to ourselves, we're damned to hell. That's what, so listen, following Jesus means we are no better than anyone else. It simply means we're better off because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. And if we'll live that, if we'll show that, then hopefully that will transform us. Hopefully we will see transformation. We'll see Christ show up in our lives a little bit more. So let me caution us against what might be some wrong ways to respond to people who are wrestling with doubt, who might be deconstructing their faith. The first is disgust, just being angry and hostile against them. Listen, that never helps anyone. I got three kids, they come to me. If they need help on homework, if they're doubting what to do, they're not sure, they're uncertain of their math, and I say, oh, you should know this, didn't you pay attention to the teacher, blah, blah, blah. That's not gonna help them learn. It's the same thing with faith. Disgust is not a good response, nor is denial. Oh, there's no problem. It's all good. No. We gotta own that there are some issues in our world. And then dismissal. Man, maybe this is the worst. Just let them go. Let them wander. If they're meant to return, if they're really true followers, they'll come back. Maybe they were never true followers of Jesus in the first place. You know, it's a narrow road to heaven and a wide road to hell. Just let them go. The problem with all that is that none of that displays the fruit of the Spirit. As the Holy Spirit moves in us, it should produce things like love and the pursuit of peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. So church, I want us to know that what often looks like rebellion it is really just pain and despair in disguise. So often when people are starting to pull back the layers of their faith, what they're doing is saying, God, where are you? Because some of this just doesn't make sense. Some of this is difficult. Some of this just is incongruent with what I see around me. And God, I want to find you here. And so we gotta give them room to do that. If we don't allow that in our church, I guarantee we will drive people from our church. So let's be careful not to push them away. Let's maybe be careful to offer what might be a better response. A better response of dialogue, of just having conversation with them. Oh, you have doubts, you have wrestles, you have uncertainty, you've seen inconsistency. Let's talk. And in that, we, we search for common ground. Oh, me too. I've wrestled with that. Oh, I've dealt with that. Yeah, I get that. I mean, maybe we pursue compassion. We hear their story and we hear their hurts, we hear their wounds, we hear their frustrations, we hear where they're coming from and we become suffering sensitive. And we don't try and fix it all, we just enter into the pain with them. And maybe, maybe we confess that some of it belongs on us, that, that maybe some of this is common ground where we just leave our defensiveness at the door so as we talk about people who are walking away from the faith, instead of just blame and shame towards them, I want us to explore with humility that maybe there's some of this in it for us. That maybe sometimes we think the Bible says something it doesn't actually say and we build up layers on top of the faith and that becomes inconsistent for people. That becomes hard for people. And, and again, tradition and preference is not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. So often we're trying to honor God. We're trying to guard against sin. We're trying to pursue holiness and we should, but we gotta be careful because sometimes in our trying to do that, we can add layers to what God has said. 
just like the early church, just like God's law. We can build up all these laws around it. And sometimes those are good things. Those are well-intentioned. It helps us pursue what's beneficial. It helps us be wise. But sometimes that can create barriers. It can elevate the wrong things to the highest platform, putting non-essential things in the essential category. And that can create barriers to God, barriers to Jesus, barriers to the gospel, barriers to salvation. You know, the church has always wrestled with this. I think back several hundred years to the Puritans. Women had to wear long dresses that scraped across the ground because the Bible said you couldn't show men your ankles. Hold up. And of all the parts that are gonna get the motor running, I don't know that the ankle is it. I'm just saying. <laughs> you, you couldn't kiss your wife in public. There was a sailor who was gone for three years, comes back, comes off the pier, sees his wife. It's been three years, y'all. He hugs his wife and kisses her, but that is unacceptable in public. So he faces two hours in the stocks for kissing his wife. Now listen, if he's kissing somebody else, I mean, it's his wife. Because the Bible instructed us to do that. There was a time when you could pay for prayer. And the more you paid, the more they prayed, and the better off you. I mean, like, well, hold up. Like, I wonder if some of this is translated down the road. I mean, there's been things back at the time when our church movement was happening in the, in the Great Awakening of the 1800s. There were many churches that had two doors. One for the men and one for the women. And the men would enter the church on one side and the women would enter on the other. And Man, kids and everyone, like guys one side, girls on there, because you certainly don't want families to sit together and you really don't want a husband and wife sitting next to each other while the preacher's preaching because it might get a little distracting. And why? Because we think the Bible instructs us that that is the best way, the only right way to do church. Sometimes we add layers that don't need to be there. Is it possible we've done something similar? Music, movies, clothing, what we wear, how we wear it, what we eat, what we drink, when we drink it, tattoos, piercings, hairstyles, dancing, is it possible we've added some layers? Listen, we should approach every issue from a biblical perspective while remembering that not every issue is equally important as the others. So as people are pulling back the layers of the faith and church, we should do this. We should examine the things that we do and believe in all these practices, but we need to be willing to put things back in place and reconstruct, and we must give people a place to reconstruct, and we do that with the essentials of who Jesus is. How many think of what could happen if we actually lived out certain parts of the Bible the way the Bible instructs, if we were fiercely generous in how we give and forgive, if we actually prayed for our enemies and went to them, if we actually served the poor and the marginalized, what if we avoided gossip and instead offered encouragement on the regular, if we gave up our comfort and we made Jesus and his mission and his kingdom central priority in our lives. I think we'd see a different trend in our culture. I think we'd see another great revival because I'm confident the world is hungry for that. You know, the world is looking for a good tune. If you ever take lyrics, they could be like the best lyrics in the world, but you put them with a bad melody, you can't remember the lyrics. But you take the worst lyrics in the world, you put them to a catchy tune, you'll remember it all day long. Baby shark, anyone? You're welcome, it'll be there the rest of the day, maybe all week for you. Terrible lyrics, but it's got this little rhythm that you just can't get out of your head. It's like demonic rhythm, right? Like, oh. Listen, we, we've done a great job as 
the modern church movement of giving people all the lyrics of doctrine and belief and what to do. The problem is the melody that we've put it with of how we live those things out hasn't always been very catchy. Church, the world is looking for the catchy tune. They need to see us live it. And if we live it the right way, listen, they'll get the lyrics, they'll get the doctrine, they'll get the beliefs, they'll get the what to do in a way that might annoy them, but they won't be able to forget about it. It'll get stuck in their head, and eventually they'll be dancing right along with us, singing the same tune of worship. So for those of you who are wrestling with doubt, who are wrestling with uncertainty, with disbelief, who are wrestling with this, I want to just encourage you to be cautious You know, I'm a DIY guy. I love the DIY shows. I love dudes like Chip Gaines, but I've worked too many construction jobs to know, like, when you start tearing things apart, use caution. You go layer by layer. You suit up. You're careful. As you start tearing apart an old house, I mean, you gotta be careful of the electric lines and the water lines. You gotta be really careful of the dust particles, of mold, of fiberglass, of asbestos, of lead. And if you're not, you just start tearing stuff apart without thinking, without having a plan to put something back in its place. You ingest all that toxicity and it will kill you slowly. The same thing is true spiritually. And you just tear it down and the whole thing's gonna come crushing down on top of you. You'll find yourself crushed and homeless spiritually and you don't want that. Have a plan to put it back in place and don't feel like you gotta go it alone. Listen, if you were to walk into the Sistine Chapel and find that somebody had spray-painted graffiti all over Michelangelo's work, they'd taken a sledgehammer and started hitting chunks of it and breaking it apart. You would not blame the artist for the vandalism. So don't do that with God. You have a bad experience with a church or with a Christian, don't blame the rest of them and certainly don't blame God. Wrestle through, when you begin finding that some things that you thought were true or some rules you thought were good maybe aren't, you don't let go of all of it. You don't abandon the faith. You simply let go of the bad, but you cling tightly to what's true, and that's Jesus. Church, whenever I find myself in that moment of doubt, wrestling, sometimes it's not a moment. Sometimes it's a season, and sometimes it feels kind of dark, but every time I'm there, I realize that Jesus meets me right there in the midst of my doubt, stretching out his hand to rescue me, and he meets me with mercy, and he meets me with compassion and an invitation to a deeper faith in him. Because just as Jesus reached down to Peter, who was drowning in his doubt while he was drowning in the water, and he invited him, and he saved him, and he rescued him, Jesus stretches out his hands on the cross of Calvary to rescue us, to meet us right where we are, in our doubt or in our unbelief. And he says, my mercy, my compassion is for you. I'm for you. I'm a God who is for you and not against you. And he comes to us in that moment. And every time I realize that the God who abandoned all the glory of heaven to come here to do what he did for us, to die for us, to save us, to rescue us. Man, I'll take all the junk. I'll take all the mess. I'll take all the hypocrisy. I'll take all those other things that are confusing. And I'll take all the doubts. If it means I still get that Jesus. Because that Jesus is true. Again and again and again, he proves himself true every time. So wherever you are, Whatever you wrestle with, whatever doubt you have, just cling tightly to the one who's true. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in a world with so much uncertainty and doubt, that you are true. And that you are not afraid of our doubt. You're not afraid of our wrestling. 
but you come to us and you meet us right there to rescue us. So God, for all who are doubting and uncertain today, God, I pray you meet them right there in their doubt and you speak your truth into their lives. God, with your rescuing hand, meet us there. And God, for all the things that we have put in the way, even well-intentioned, even well-meaning, God, we apologize if that ever creates an unnecessary barrier for anyone to get to you. So God, help us to strip away all the unnecessary so that we might reveal you and all your glory and all your beauty, your bold, vibrant life for us. And we pray this, we plead with you for this, we beg this of you, God. In Jesus we pray, amen.